Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. During recent weeks and months, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has repeatedly been in the spotlight, drawing both praise and criticism from observers in Germany and abroad. On the one hand, he has received positive attention for his efforts to promote an ambitious agenda that would transform both Germany and the European Union, attempting to meet the current moment amid Russia's war in Ukraine. On the other hand, Scholz has encountered significant challenges in executing on this political agenda, dragging his feet on support for Ukraine, facing a worsening energy crisis, a fractious coalition government, and a series of personal scandals. Looking ahead, major questions remain about his ability to overcome these obstacles and deliver successes for Germany and Europe. And to discuss all of this and more, we're really pleased to welcome Jana Puglieren and Sam Denny to the podcast. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, brief introductions. Jana is the head of the Berlin office and a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Her work focuses on German and European foreign security and defense policy, as well as Germany's role in Europe and transatlantic relations. And Sam is a German chancellor fellow at the Alexander von Humboldt Stiftung. He specializes in US foreign policy, transatlantic relations, German domestic and foreign policy and threats to democracy in Europe. Okay, so maybe we can start with you, Jana, and pick up, I think, on our most recent hook, um, which was uh, Schultz's speech on Monday. He gave a major speech in Prague where he outlined a vision for EU reform. Um, tell us what he said um, and how it's been received you know, there in Germany as well. So first of all, um, the speech itself was already, I think, a success. Um, the, the sheer fact that he gave that speech, um, because you haven't heard a lot uh, under Angela Merkel about yeah, Germany's vision of Europe. And yeah, visions were considered something um, that um, kind of asked for a doctor. Um, people quoted Helmut Schmidt, who always uh, said, who has visions need to see a doctor. That was basically the Merkel's doctrine. She was very pragmatic and very down to earth. And so she, um, yeah, she, she was not very outspoken about where she wanted to position Germany within the EU, but then more specifically also what she wanted to do with the EU. So Scholz, um, I think he had um, this idea for quite some time to lay out um, some, some ideas about Europe's future. And I think he chose a very good um, occasion and a very good location because um, the Czech Republic um, has the EU council presidency. Um, and um, I think Scholz wanted to send a signal, um, like Macron gave the big speech um, at the Sorbonne in France, like the French president talking about Europe and France and the German chancellor wanted to talk about Europe's future in Prague in Central and Eastern Europe. And I think that was a conscious decision. And I, I, I think that was actually a very good decision. Um, and Prague is also a good uh, destination or location um, for such a speech because, yeah, because Germany has very good working relationship with the Czech Republic, but the relationship overall with Central and Eastern Europe has been souring over the recent months a lot. Um, and so I think he wanted to choose Prague as, as a symbol because the relationship is still better than with Poland from both sides. So um, the Czechs uh, see uh, Germany a bit more positively, but also there are less problems when it comes to the rule of law. So uh, it was a conscious decision to do this in Prague um, because of the EU Council presidency and because uh, it's uh, a city in Central Europe. And I think that is also one of the most important things um, about the speech. In the very beginning, Scholz quoted Milan Kundera, who is a Czech writer, a very famous one. And he started with an interesting quote because uh, Kundera in the early 80s observed that countries like Hungary, like the Czech Republic, like Poland, have basically vanished from the Western map. Um, so they found themselves behind the Iron Curtain on the other side. And so Scholz, I think, wanted to send the signal that he wants to do justice again and undo um, yeah, um, this, this division. Um, so he wanted to send a signal that for him, 
countries uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, and also east of the current EU borders belong to the European Union. And I think he did that very, um, very nicely um, and communicated also very clearly that a further enlargement of the EU to the east was something that he saw very positive. Um, and yeah, all that I think was very good about the speech. Um, maybe to be a bit more critical now, overall, I mean, the fact that the speech exists or that he gave it was very good, but we are not spoiled as Germans, as I said. So the speech itself was um, very technocratic, I think. Um, so he, it was nothing um, that, that, I don't know, that warms up your heart <laughs> listening to it. Uh, it was, yeah, very um, Schultzish, I would say. So, um, and it was full of nitty gritty details, um, but a lot of those details were not visionary or were not kind of new. Um, he had mentioned those ideas before. Um, so it was not kind of a big jump forward, um, I would say, but um, a lot of concrete ideas and suggestions and plans, um, but everything um, people already had heard uh, at one point or another. Um, but overall, I think he positioned himself as a very pro-European chancellor, um, very in the tradition of uh, German EU integration, very skeptical about differentiated integration, Europe of different speeds, core Europe, um, Europe of different clubs. At one point, he's, he, when he talked about um, qualitative majority voting, which he um, wants to apply also to foreign security, defense policy, tax policy. Um, and he, he said either um, in an enlarged EU, either we um, go for qualitative uh, majority voting or basically we end up in a jungle of um, opt-ins, opt-outs. And he was very negative about a more flexible Europe. And that I think is very, very, very German. And the last thing which I thought was kind of 100% German was also that he talked about Germany as this big country in the center of Europe. Um, where was task it is to bring east, west, um, north, south together. Um, so he emphasized Germany's uh, obligation to lead from the center and to lead um, together with others to take decisions collectively, to treat other countries on eye level. Um, and, and that we've heard from Angela Merkel, actually, kind of this idea that Germany is that honest broker in the center, uh, kind of bridging uh, gaps and bringing countries together. And I actually, yeah, I found myself a bit annoyed with that. I mean, that is of course true and that is Germany's traditional role, but so many uh, of our European allies have, I mean, have mentioned that they would wish Germany to acknowledge its own interest much more. And because it's not that Germany is this um, kind of neutral power, but we have interests. And when, when, when we want to push them through, like uh, people always refer to the, the migration decision of 2015 or uh, kind of the, energy turnaround after Fukushima. We do this rather recklessly without consulting anybody and just uh, yeah, following through with, with what we want to do. And so I've heard um, throughout the years, very often European partners telling me, why can't Germany be more outspoken about its leadership role and, and kind of not always pretend that it doesn't have interests and that is that bridge builder in the center? It is not. It is very often a divisive power. And with that, I uh, that's my first take. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, yeah, there's so much there that we're going to pick up on, but maybe, um, Sam, to come to you, what one, I love Jana's point about um, the, the location of the speech, right, that he gave it in Eastern Europe. And because one of the things I think a lot of people have been talking about in the aftermath of, of Russia's attack on Ukraine is whether the center of gravity within Europe is moving east. Um, I don't know if you like have a sense of whether or not that's recognized in Berlin or not. I mean, Yana, you talked about it being intentional. Um, is there a recognition that you, that you think like that this, that this center of gravity is, is, is indeed moving east? And I think this is this is actually a really great question. This is I really wanted to touch on this point as well, um, just based on the speech. But I think that's something that's not as much recognized, at least from my perception in, in Germany, um, and not just the, the kind of the shift in the balance of power 
in Europe, but also just kind of the reputational damage that, that Germany has taken um, in Central and Eastern Europe and the Baltics. Um, and so I think, I mean, as Jana was saying, the, the choice to hold this speech in Prague to, to very to vocally reach out to people who are on the other side of the Iron Curtain and to kind of bring them into the European family was a really important choice by Schultz. Um, I mean, in particular, given how Germany and the kind of security policy decisions it's made have been viewed in these regions. And so we can get into some of the issues with that, in particular with, with the Czech Republic and Poland um, and a little bit in the conversation. But I think beyond the kind of the policies that were announced in it, which uh, again, I mean, you've seen shades of them kind of floating around already. Um, just having Schultz go to Prague, make this speech and kind of present himself on the European stage, especially within this debate um, was really important. And maybe if I can add, um, so I think Berliners are not very um, conscious about the power shift in the EU and they see it with a lot of suspicion. So, but but I, I see it definitely happening and I see it basically from the beginning of uh, the war in Ukraine that countries in Central and Eastern Europe, but also the, North, the Nordics, um, Finland very much so, but also Sweden, Denmark, they have been much more vocal and much more ambitious in formulating Europe's answer to the war and to Putin. They have been pushing Germany um, for months. Um, for example, from early on when, when um, there was this debate whether to include SWIFT in the sanctions package and the EU member states had agreed um, prior to the war um, that, that it was not included. And then um, overnight that changed and there was a new dynamic and that new dynamic came predominantly from countries in Central and Eastern Europe. Also the Baltics, I mean, look at Lithuania, look at Estonia, how vocal they are and how they are also the moral leaders, I think, of, of Europe right now. And so I think that is both from a Berlin perspective, both positive and negative. Um, what I think is positive actually, or should be positive, um, is that it is so healthy that it's not all about Germany and France all the time, but that there are other coalitions and groups of countries that can show leadership and that can push basically Germany and France to do things and not always the other way around. I think that's incredibly healthy. Um, the problem is that Germany needed to be pushed so hard. I think that is um, what, um, yeah, what created a lot of um, headache, especially for, for me. I was in Prague in April and I came back and I was really, I, I was so impressed how kind of how different the debate about the war was uh, in the Czech Republic and how different it felt to be there and that kind of, yeah, countries much closer to Russia have the impression that basically they are next on Putin's shopping list. And I just give you give you one example. Like yesterday, I hosted a discussion about the visa ban, um, and I had um, participants from Finland and Estonia making their cases. And then there was a, an Italian participant, and it was off the on the record. That's why I can tell it. And he said, "Yeah, in this war, kind of, we are not a part of this war. We are." Um, kind of, we have a friendly neutrality, <laughs> and that was that was kind of from an Estonian perspective. That was just completely outrageous because they had mentioned that they feel like being part of that war. And in Berlin, it's it's both. So I think um, in Berlin um, has been under a lot of pressure and expectation. I think also because of the Zeitenwende and because we're just the biggest. Oh, kind of most influential um, power in Europe, and we, we did not deliver. And I heard this frequently in Central and Eastern Europe that this was the one test case for Germany, and we did not live up to the expectations because of, yeah, still because of Nord Stream 2 uh, and because it was suspended uh, too late, um, because, because of the uh, kind of forever time it took us to deliver um, heavy weapons to Ukraine. So I think for some countries, we were a constant disappointment. And that is why I think I see this power shift also um, with a bit of fear um, that 
a new rift in the EU is emerging. Um, it reminds me of something that we've seen in the kind of during the the crisis um, in the eurozone or the uh, migration, so-called migration crisis in 2015, that we see emerging camps and um, yeah rifts within the EU. And I think Germany needs to be very aware of this. And if it wants to be a bridge builder, urgently, and that's why this Prague speech was so important, kind of, um, yeah, do something to, <laughs> to regain some credibility and trust, which was really, really lost in the past months. And to bring also, yeah, Southern Europe and, and Central and Eastern Europe and Northern Europe together, because <laughs> yesterday that was really eye-opening. I mean, friend, friendly neutrality was also news to me. Uh, <laughs> um, just, thank you both. Oh, yes, please, Sam, go ahead. Sorry, just, just two really quick points about just the, the visa ban debate, because I think it's really um, kind of symbolic for this shift. And what I found interesting is just watching kind of the, the dynamics of that debate it seems like kind of the Baltic, Central Europe, Eastern Europe have been very much pro in favor of kind of banning Russian Russian tourists from coming while Germany has positioned itself against this move. And I think that almost Germany's positioning on this because of the reputational damage it has taken, because its power shift has almost been delegitimized and almost kind of undermined the debate that's undergoing in the EU. And so I think, as Jana was saying, I kind of look at that with a little bit of trepidation with regards to having kind of this healthy kind of balance in, in terms of debate. Um, and two, just in regards to, um, again, on this issue in terms of splitting the, the EU, I mean, one of the proposals that's come out of, out of the recent um, summit regards to the visa ban is, is if there isn't a full ban that's, that's negotiated out of it, one solution taken by countries like the Baltic or groups like the Baltics might be to, to not recognize travel documents issued elsewhere, which would, again, directly lead to a split in kind of internal migration. Well, thank you all very much. Uh, that was uh, that was quite a, a, a meal that you all served up of uh, of Scholz and uh, and German policy. L but let me ask you a question about the speech in terms of: Do you think it did any good? I mean, um, I think for us, for you all, for the expert circles, for Brussels sprouts listeners who are all experts in their own right, um, I'm sure that they they picked apart the speech and, and weighed every word and looked for the nuance, which was, it was full of nuance in, in some ways. Um, but it, did it help uh, um, in Berlin with uh, the problems that the government and Schultz is having uh, among the, the electorate there in Germany or in Berlin? Is it, did people notice it? Do people listen to speeches like that? And over, and you know, the audience obviously for the speech wasn't necessarily Berlin, but it was uh, Europe. It was other, you know, Central Eastern Europe. It was the Baltics. It was others. Um, and where did they listen? Uh, or was it a, just a small circle of, of Europeanists and transatlanticists who listened? And, and that's not the audience he needs to reach. It was the uh, broader audience in Germany or a broader audience in Europe. Do you think he did that? Did he reach it? Or is this going to be a speech that will be known uh, down the road only to a, a handful of people? Like the Macron speech at the Sorbonne, you know? Um, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's something that, that we remember, but not many, not many others do, but it was as much as it was an important speech and then a lot with Macron, but, but anyway, how did the speech do? Did it reach the right people? So I think more people will remember the Macron speech, the Sorbonne speech than the Scholz uh, speech in Prague, um, because even though the Macron speech, I mean, might be, also more uh, directed at a kind of rather small audience, it was still, it ma made significant headlines. And the, the interesting thing with the Prague speech, I don't know if it's an indicator, but the next day I, I looked at Political Europe, their morning newsletter, and, and every Eurocrat looks at it, and it was a footnote. So it did not even uh, get kind of half a page, um, which which I found quite remarkable because, uh, it, I mean, it is still the German chancellor giving kind of his first big uh, speech on Europe. And I think Political didn't really do justice, but it might be an indicator. So I think um, the speech had basically different audiences. I think um, it resonated with the um, with the kind of elites, and and they needed to hear from Germany where Germany stands. Um, I think what it did not really do is maybe regain trust and um, 
yeah, sympathies in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, I think it was, um, we need to do more than one speech. And in Germany, I think it did not really resonate because people have different things on their mind. They are really worried about um, kind of, yeah, being able to heat their flats in autumn. Um, and so I think, I think that was not Scholz's intention to really address the German audience. In Germany, kind of domestically, other topics are at the forefront right now. It's really all about energy. Dan, maybe picking up on that, I think that's a great transition. Jim, do you want to jump back in? I saw, I forget. I forgot you had. Um, well, no, no, no. I, I, you go ahead. I can just tell that you've got this great question. <laughs> your just, eyes are sparkling, and so can't wait to get this ahead. question out. Yeah, go ahead and do your question. Okay, so I was going to transition to some of the, the domestic mood. Um, Jim always likes to talk about the mood music in these places, but um, I, I want to ask about it on two fronts, but maybe we'll start more with like the stability issue. So, uh, you know, there's he's facing some challenges, I think, within the electorate. His popularity seems to be relatively low. Um, so he has a stability issue. He, so there's that, his own personal stability, I think, in popularity amongst the public. Maybe some questions about the stability of the coalition. And then I do want to pick up on like the societal stability coming into winter. You know, the, the media probably for good reason is making so much about, you know, this is going to be a long, hard winter um, and what stability looks like in Germany. But I, I don't know, Sam, maybe you pick off uh, you know, what you want to take on, but kind of getting at these broader stability questions at those different levels, I think would be really interesting. Sure, happy to. And I think, I mean, in a word, I mean, I've I've kind of viewed um, German society or German stability going into fall kind of an ominous kind of perspective, just because it seems like a lot of different problems are kind of coming to a head at once. Um, but with regards to Schultz and the coalition, I mean, you're right, he is, if I remember correctly, third most popular in if Germans could elect their chancellor directly, he's the third most popular choice behind both Robert Habeck, uh, the economics minister, and um, uh, Friedrich Merz, the head of the CDU. Um, and I, I think this is actually very much felt within the coalition, this kind of the way in which politicians are, are kind of being pulled. And so you can see this in how, for example, um, the SPD, different elements of the coalition jumped on Robert Habeck with regards to kind of the gas, gas levy scandal, which is a really complicated um, kind of policy idea that's meant to kind of support German gas importers. Let's, we can leave it at that. Um, and so it's been very much perceived that, you know, Habeck is clearly the most popular politician in Germany right now by a fairly wide margin or just, and so this is viewed as an attempt to bring him down a peg. Um, but looking again to these, this kind of different mixture of economic issues, political stability issues, I think what I find very worrisome um, is the mixture of kind of inflation, gas prices, and also the potential return of the uh, coronavirus pandemic in the fall. And so what's, what's worthwhile to keep in mind on this is that the sort of ragtag or very heterogeneous protest movement that's built up around COVID-19 lockdown measures, the Kvadanka, which is this kind of left-wing-ish, moving rightwards kind of movement that's existed for the past two years and has organized both large protests in Berlin and kind of more spontaneous protests in the various different regions, has been talking about uh, the war, the need for peace, potential economic damage, all these issues since basically since the war began. Um, and you also have German far right having started talking about wanting to exploit the economic kind of fallout of the pandemic since basically the pandemic began in, in 2020. And so now, you know, you look to the fall where you have inflation at currently 7.5% with some predictions that it might go up to 10% in the worst case scenario, which just for scale is the worst inflation that Germany has seen since the Second World War. Um, plus, ga plus gas prices, which whether or not there's kind of an energy and heating crisis in Germany, I'm a bit more positive on that now than I was before. I mean, just given the amount of gas that Germany's been able to save, they're very but much- The good energy. news is they're like at 80 something percent. Right, full, exactly. That was like the one little piece of good news I've seen in <laughs> the last couple of days. Right, you have to be positive. <laughs> but I mean, just looking to- this mixture of, of factors, um, you know, whether or not there are, are kind of sharp lockdown measures, it doesn't seem to me to be all that likely, but 
the conflation of all of these could lead to a really ugly scenario in the fall and winter when people can't kind of go out as much when you know the the inflation really starts to bite their their checkbook every month um and so there it's really important to also start looking at the polling associated with german support for ukraine and so what i found interesting is already in the summer you have support for German sanctions around 58% or 51% in a couple of polls taken over the last month or so. And so it's almost to me, not a question of whether or not Germany will continue to support Ukraine. I, I think that's, that's a given, but it's a question of how much resistance there might be in society, what the protests look like, and then what further radicalization you might see within these groups going forward. One statistic that's really, Jan, I'll turn it to you, but one statistic that has really stuck with me, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but there was a very high percentage of Germans who did not believe that Ukraine would win the war. And then that certainly has implications then for what Germans would support giving to the Ukraine. If you don't believe that they can win, then you're probably not wholeheartedly behind them and willing to provide them with the weapons and the support that they need. And that's something that's really stuck with me. But Jana, I don't know, what do you, what do you, what are you sensing in terms of the durability of support, German support for Ukraine? I think um, Sam has summed it up very nicely, the perfect storm that <laughs> might be in the making. And I just wanted to say that German politicians are very aware of this um, for, for weeks now, and they bring it up constantly in conversations, kind of, that they are basically aware that they have a basically limited uh, time frame for um, ambitious further uh, announcements, steps, measures they want to take. And they are like, yeah, rabbits in front of a snake looking at, at autumn and winter. Um, Annalena Baerbock had recently spoken about possible riots <laughs> in the streets. And yeah, I think there is a big insecurity um, amongst politicians what they have to expect from yeah from from the German population. For now, I'm more relaxed um, because I think so far, I mean, yes, uh, approval um, ratings for um, su supporting Ukraine ha have dropped, but it's still a majority of Germans supporting um, to help Ukraine, and also still a majority of people is willing to accept uh, kind of personal sacrifices. Um, so I think, and now, for example, with um, Vladimir Putin basically shutting down um, gas flows through Nord Stream 1, I, I can also have the reverse effect. You know, I still believe in uh, resistant democracies and resilient democracies. And people here in Germany, um, I mean, they had to correct their view uh, about Russia quite significantly, but but a lot of people actually do think differently, or um, maybe not not so much some of the politicians. Um, but yeah, but Germans now realize how dependent we are on Russian gas. Um, kind of what mistakes have been made um, in recent years? How people <laughs> politicians had lied to them, saying there wasn't a problem, and kind of. Russia would never stop supplying us with gas. And so I'm not that negative uh, about this. I think it would demand uh, courageous political leadership um, and yeah, um, a chancellor explaining why kind of the alternative to supplying Ukraine with weapons or kind of supporting Ukraine would be to accept that Vladimir Putin succeeds in changing borders in Europe by force and that kind of that uh, uh, has consequences far beyond not being able to, I don't know, um, shower uh, 30 minutes a day <laughs> um, with hot water or something like this. So um, yeah, I I'm more positive about the German society. But and of course there will be a backlash. I mean, yes, but I, I still hope that the majority stays calm and supports the government. Sam, I want, didn't want to interrupt you. No, no, that's all right. Just a couple other points for reasons to be positive. I mean, the other thing to notice, uh, given the increasing discussion around energy, is that there really has been a societal effort to save energy, to be ready for the fall and the winter. I mean, you see um, government buildings not being lit anymore. 
you see reg new regulations for heating buildings only to a certain temperature. You see people increasingly talking about ways they're saving energy in their daily lives. Um, so I think that's something that this, this awareness of, of kind of doing one's own duty is kind of, again, sinking in the population. And two, I mean, today, the German government the, or the coalition is meeting in Meseburg to discuss a third package to kind of relieve the economic kind of burden on the German citizens. So that's another thing to look forward to in the next few days, what that actually turns out to be. I'm more worried actually about European stability here because again, like during the coronavirus crisis, um, the German government is still uh, able to yeah, provide uh, these huge age packages um, and to support um, yeah, the, 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 the kind of poorer part of the German population and to ease the pain. But in other European countries, that is not that easy. And it's not just a German problem, it's an, uh, kind of all uh, European problem. And so I'm, I'm a bit afraid, going back to the rifts in the EU, that um, those economies that are already hit much harder than, for example, the German um, economy because of the implications of the coronavirus crisis, um, they, will, they will be hit hard um, again. And so I think we will have new debates on the EU level about maybe joint debt or kind of ways to compensate um, more equally um, kind of for, 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 yeah, for the imbalance um, in, within uh, the European uh, population. And I don't know where that will lead us, but I see that coming. Uh, no, I thank you all very much for that. Uh, and I've changed my question about four or five times uh, just based <laughs> on what you all were dishing out. So let me, let me ask you something uh, that just popped into my mind. And, and that is, so, you know, here in the States, of course, we're asked all the time, do you think Europe is going to be Uh, supporting um, Ukraine through the winter. The winter is going to be hard. If there is unrest in Europe, will uh, Putin be successful in peeling off Europe and it'll just be the United States, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm starting to think now uh, that really the question ought to be asked, which is if, you know, when we think about Europe um, no longer supporting Ukraine, we think about it in terms of Well, there will be the supplies, the munitions, the equipment, the training, you know, the material and military support for Ukraine is what would be turned off by a, uh, some European countries or Europe as a whole if, if there was a faltering there uh, over time uh, because of winter, et cetera. But maybe that's not what this looks like. Uh, if Europe were to lose heart, and I'm not saying that it will, but it would actually not be the way we think it's going to look here in the States. It'd be more of uh, European nations going to the EU and saying, you've got to help us with subsidies. You've got to help us uh, uh, with our resilience. You at EU, you've got to help us. So it's not necessarily going to the European Union and forcing a, uh, a European position of being to Ukraine. You guys, you got to make a deal. You're really putting us through a hard time. But that's not what it looks like when Europe, should Europe decide to pull back. It's more uh, European nations saying, we need help. You've got to help us through this winter. You've got to give us energy support. You've got to give us subsidies. That's really what it looks like. It's not necessarily a cutoff of military support. Am I right about that? Or, or how does that look? I think we're, we don't know yet. And there are many wild cards. Look, for example, at the uh, Italian political system and the upcoming election. So the Italian government basically collapsed over the question um, of support for Ukraine, um, where kind of, yeah, um, the rather pro-Ukrainian or supportive um, direction Uh, that uh, Draghi took was then contested. And we don't know what comes out of this election and who wins and if we really will see this right-wing coalition um, then being uh, in charge. And that is a wild card. Hungary is a wild card um, in terms of, yeah, kind of countries who potentially could break the, um, yeah, the sanctions, for example, because they still uh, require unanimity. So I think there is still the potential of countries kind of blowing it all up. But I would I would assume that um, we 
it will be a debate um, on, a, on a European level about solidarity. And you already saw this. Um, and from a German perspective, I, I think it should make us very humble when we asked um, the other European countries to cut gas because of us. So um, I think the Spaniards had kind of, kind of nice memories because they thought, oh, <laughs> someone was living uh, kind of uh, above um, its payroll. So kind of we we lived uh, far beyond our natural resources and kind of we were very good in lecturing others, for example, countries in Southern Europe that kind of one needs to, to work with what one has and kind of not spend uh, beyond what's in your purse. And, and yeah, all of a sudden Germany had to ask other countries for solidarity. And I think that was a very humble experience for us Germans. And, um, and I mean, we, solidarity was shown, but um, I hope that this will hold, you know, this idea that we are in this together um, and that we need to support each other, societies and, and governments. Yeah, I'm, I'm still hopeful that this is possible, but it's a bet. And Putin, I think, thinks that he can win this bet, that... Um, I think he well knows that the sanctions by Russia and that um, his time frame or his kind of, kind of is also very limited. But I think he just expects that he can basically do this longer up than we can do it, and and kind of yeah keep the pressure up longer than 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 we do. And um, I think we need to prove him wrong. It's a right. related question, and Sam, you can pick up and, and build on that. Is I mean, it's you know, at the beginning of the war, Scholz gave the big speech, and I can't say the German word for Zeitenwende. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> and there were, I think, there was a lot of hope, right, that this was ushering in a, in a new period. And then it, I think, it's just been met, I think, with a lot of disappointment in the United States, and you both have touched on the loss of trust in Eastern Europe. I mean, how do you explain to a non-German audience? why there's been so little follow through, whether it's, you know, part of the, the approach seemed to be that other countries, Slovakia and others would provide, Slovenia would provide arms and, and Germany would come and kind of backfill those orders to and allow those countries. There's, and, and I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but in terms of like promises of aid to Ukraine, how much has actually been, been delivered, it's kind of a constant I don't know if you would call it foot dragging, but an inability to implement the policy and follow through as quickly as many people would have hoped. And I don't, how do you explain that kind of to a non-German audience about why Germany hasn't been able to deliver? So that's a, that's a really good question. And just first to, to Jim's point, I think there's actually, I mean, maybe another reason to be positive is, is to look back to the end of the, the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, seeing you know, recovery from that was the first time that, that Europe actually issued joint debt or took on joint debt in order to fund the recovery. And so who's to say that given the solidarity that other European nations have shown Germany, that something like that might not also be possible again, um, especially with Olaf Scholz's chancellor, who played such a key role in that earlier kind of moment. But I think to this question of how do you how do you explain this, and this is a really big question, um, so I want to make sure if I leave Jana some room to kind of speak on it too, just because I'm really interested in what she has to say. But my understanding of it is is that first you have to understand that, that the reaction to the war in Ukraine has has challenged Germany's kind of identity as a country, as kind of its its sense of itself, and in, in, in the kind of post World War II period in which. It, it sought to deal with its history, the legacy of national socialism, and kind of put aside um, kind of the legacy of militarism and war or offensive warfare. I mean, I look back to this Thomas Baga essay from a few years ago, where he said that you know no one really so much believed in the end of history as Germany, right? And so there's been a number of moments throughout the recent past where that kind of belief system has been has been shaken. But I think what you're seeing now with, with, again, the renewed Russian invasion of Ukraine is the end of that. And so the battles you've seen in German society between the sort of pro-Ukraine or pro-support Ukraine camp and the sort of pro-peace at any cost camp, to me at least, shows a battle over this sense of identity, over the sort of conception of the German soul. Um, and this goes even back farther beyond sort of in regards to Russia, farther beyond uh, the Second World War, kind of historical relations between Germany and Russia. So it's, it's really a very deep history that you're being forced to reevaluate anew. 
Jana, you want to jump in? Yeah. Um, so I think coming back to your question, how to explain this, um, I think you can basically tell two stories. You can tell the non-German, non-European uh, counterpart that, um, that things are not so bad, that kind of Germany six months ago uh, was a different country, that after the big speech and um, many things that were kind of impossible to imagine in December 2021 became reality. So a hundred billion um, special fund just for the Bundeswehr, uh, the procurement of the F-35, armed drones. That is all a small revolution uh, in German security and defense policy. And you could tell the story as a success story. Um, and I think the government tends to do this um, and basically emphasized how much um, taboos they've broken and how far um, they got. And I think the story is true. It's not, it's not, it's not false or a, a fake story. It's a true story. Um, and sometimes um, I hear this from people from non-Germans when I complain about us being too lazy and <laughs> not ambitious enough. I say, but, but you're amazing. You've done so much. So that is, that is basically one way to tell, to tell this kind of how Germany has broken taboos, has um, basically confronted its um, kind of disastrous Russia policy, um, tries to change gears um, kind of significantly um, on, on energy and, and all of this. Or you could tell the story as, um, well, <laughs> it seems that for many people, kind of the very ambitious speech was already the answer um, and th that there is not, Kind of the moment the speech was given was three days into the war. Most people in Germany thought that Russia would take over Ukraine um, in a matter of yeah, in in in, in days or weeks. Um, and so there was not really a concrete plan um, when Scholz gave that speech how to support Ukraine in, in the long run. Um, there was this decision to send weapons, but I think nobody was aware that this could take a long time. And what Scholz now said in the Prague speech that we should um, that ad hoc measures are not enough, and that not kind of every country um, kind of should look at what do we have uh, in stock and what can we supply, but that this should be more coordinated and more uh, kind of with a long term perspective. I think nobody uh, imagined this. So that's, I think, what made it so hard that I think Zeitenwende just hit Germany. And Zeitenwende is not what Scholz's answer. It's more what Scholz, it's, it's more the problem. So he woke up in the morning and saw that the world had changed. But his idea, I think, was not to change a, a German foreign policy and to turn it from kind of on its head, because during the election campaign, he was Mr. Stability. He was Mr. Status Quo and Mr. Continuity. He was basically Angela Merkel in foreign policy. So, and then the war happened. And I think his world really changed and the way he saw Russia and and this adaptation process just, um, I think, needs a lot of time and is kind of, it's too much for many, many Germans because they need to say goodbye to long hold beliefs, um, things that they have been socialized with throughout their lives. Um, and and you, you hear that sometimes in statements kind of that they are not ready to let go. Um, and so there was significant um, pushback in the SPD um, and after the initial speech, which got a lot of support, I think, yeah, various stakeholders in Germany, including the, the uh, Social Democratic Party, um, pulled the brakes and, and said, whoa, 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 not so fast. Yeah, and Germany needs to, I think, find also a new role for itself. You know, th this idea that we could lead kind of supplying Ukraine with arms has still not sunken in. So I think the what, what the German government had in mind um, after the first weeks was to be somewhere middle of the road, not at the top and not at the very end, but basically um, at eye level with France or Italy, but not kind of as the lead nation in Europe when it came to weapons supply to Ukraine. Yeah. This has been so, what a wonderful discussion. Jim, do you have any other questions you want to throw in there? Gosh, I, I do. Uh, and, uh, but I know we're short on time. 
Uh, but thank you all. I mean, is, is this the last question time? Uh, are we going off now? Uh, you or can we give have a last question, time? yes. Uh, I guess my last question would be, how does Germany go about developing this uh, this leadership sense? You know, they were saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, this was quite of a, that's, the speech was a bit of a shock early on in the war. And uh, and this recognition now by Schultz, he woke up uh, understanding that, uh, you know, Mr. Stability needs to change. Uh, and so his speech was the first move. And I guess the Prague speech probably too. But how does Germany go about doing this? Kind of, kind of helping the German population slough off the, what they've been inculcated with for so many generations and instead look towards a new German role that's not in the center, but, but out front. How do you, how does the German government or how do the German people go about reaching that state of mind? You sure. first. <laughs> so I think, yeah, that's also a huge question. I, I think kind of, kind of similar to what I was saying before, it's, it's a matter of time and you've seen kind of key German lawmakers really attempt to explain how you know, security policy, how military force underpins the sort of life that the Germans are able to enjoy now and the peace and stability that exists in Europe and how important that is that Germany also contributes to, to NATO, to kind of security in Europe. So I think one, it's just a question of, I view it as kind of chipping away bit by bit at something that's built up over time. Um, and I think it's really, that's just what's, what's kind of most important. It's, it's, there's this concept after, after the fall of the wall, this kind of the wall that still existed in people's heads. And so there still needs to be a Zeitenwende that happens in people's, in people's heads over the next decades. And I think that's also where, you know, where it's important for this kind of transatlantic relationship to kind of remain strong because the U.S. plays a key role in that process. Do you think Schultz is the leader that could uh, help lead uh, this change? Or is it really someone needs to come on in time, as you say, it's going to take time. In time, there'll be a new personality that will take the lead that can really kind of bring the German state and government and people into that, this new leadership position. What I found interesting was the Lars Klingbeil speech. Lars Klingbeil is one of the party leaders of the Social Democratic Party. They, um, they are two, and he's one of them. And he gave um, a remarkable speech a couple of months ago prior to the parliamentary summer break. And basically, he gave the speech the follow-up speech to the Zeitenwende that Olaf Scholz didn't uh, give. And he talked about, he used the word German leadership. Um, and in German, it sounds um, it sounds a bit different because it uh, immediately brings back memories of the uh, Second World War. Deutschland als Führungsmacht uh, with the Führung uh, in it is, is still hard um, for, for some German ears. But he he used it and he explains uh, he explained how he meant it and and how he underst understands German leadership, and um, so I was I was struck by um, by him doing this because I thought for me what he said is so normal because I mean in, in kind of in, amongst policy experts we talk about this uh, for a long time already but for the social democrats and the broader public and how it was received in the news this was kind of really something. And so I think maybe younger generation politicians um, are more open to, to this idea, kind of to see Germany as, as, a, as a leading nation. So maybe it's a generational issue. I, I found that speech, um, the last Klingbeil speech remarkable. I, I think the German public is, um, I, think, I think they are more aware of um, these things than politicians sometimes think. Um, it is more special groups in German society that are not, but by and large, um, here again, um, public surveys show that uh, German population has understood that they need a functioning Bundeswehr, that they want one, um, and that they support. Um, the Sondervermögen, and and so I I would I would say sometimes I think it's an excuse uh, uh, that politicians use, <laughs> kind of that they cannot sell something to the public, but the public is already uh, far away, and 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 it kind of they they, they have already swallowed this um, and understood this uh, very well. So, yeah, I think it's 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 really a matter of leadership, and it's also in Germany it's very closely connected to the economy. For example, I was um, hoping that. 
this lesson we've hopefully learned um, when it comes to our energy dependence and, and Russia, um, that this was would lead us to some conclusions on China. But for example, um, um, direct investments in China have just um, met an all-time high. And so that was very depressing for me because I thought this is a process, the Zeitenwende is something that just started. This is the very beginning and we need to continue and we need to think broader than just uh, Russia and security and defense and energy. We need to think, yeah, technology um, and, and renewables. And then China comes into, into the game. And yeah, but... I am still hopeful that we can that we can manage. I'm not, I'm not sure if we if we have enough time for our transition because I think we are too slow. But I think we, yeah. I was I was more skeptical in the weeks that followed the Zeitenwende speech because I had the impression nothing happens. But now when I look at, I was still very reluctant or kind of not enough supply of weapons for Ukraine. But but still, I I think. We do more than I think Germany ever wanted to do. And so we need to keep pushing. Um, and yeah, but I hope that Germany will react and wake up and adapt. We, I always love to end on a more optimistic note. So I think I sensed some optimism on that, on that last bit, but I think we probably could have spent 30 more minutes talking about um, Germany-China relations too. That was definitely something... Um, I had in the back of my mind to pick up, but alas, we will have to have you on for another episode entirely, because I think your point, Jana, in, in, in understanding how what has happened with Russia has knock-on effects for the way that Europe is looking at China, I think is something that we're, we've been you know, very interested in, but we will, we will pencil you in for another podcast at some point, but thank you for this. I think it was just such a rich discussion, um, and I'm so thankful that you both took the time to join us and looking forward to continuing this um, on another episode at some point soon, so thank you. Thank you yes, for thank your interest. You, so much. <laughs> you know, Germans are always interested in Germany, <laughs> but that you are interested, that is special. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.